Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, protest and performance at the Performer Biennial in New York, the fight for the identity of the UK's National Trust, and Hans Holbein in London. Performance art has long been used as a vehicle for protest and political activism, and now, in its 10th edition, the Performer Biennial in New York has a new programme dedicated to artists exploring the subject. Protest and Performance, a way of life, which started this week, features eight events involving artists from across the world, but with particular links to the Middle East. And while it was programmed months ahead of the present war in Gaza, it's inevitably gained further relevance. I talked to Defna Ayas, Senior Programme Advisor, and Cathy Noble, Senior Curator at Performer, about about the programme. In the UK, the National Trust, which looks after historic buildings and landscapes across Britain, has become the subject of a row between its current management and campaigners who argue that it's strayed from its essential remit. Our associate digital editor, Alexander Morrison, speaks to Martin Drury, a former director of the Trust, about why it's prompted such intense debate. And this episode's work of the week is Hans Holbein the Younger's portrait of Derek Bourne from 1533, a newly restored painting that features in an exhibition at the Queen's Gallery in Buckingham Palace in London, the home of the UK's Royal Collection. The show, Holbein at the Tudor Court, is curated by Kate Hurd, and she tells me about the picture. On theartnewspaper.com, you can access our latest subscription offer. Get a subscription to the art newspaper with full digital access for £1, $1 or €1 for three months. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the 10th edition of the Performer Biennial in New York focuses, as ever, on the latest developments in global performance art. But it's the first iteration of Performer to feature a section dedicated specifically to protest and performance. It includes eight events that began this week and continue to 19th of November, involving artists from across the world, but with a particular focus on those from the Middle East, including artists from Lebanon, Turkey and Iran, among others. It was programmed long before Hamas's murderous attacks that killed 1,400 people in Israel and the Israeli retaliation that has killed more than 10,000 Palestinian people so far, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, and displaced more than a million others. As I record this, officials and diplomats are negotiating a days-long ceasefire in exchange for the release of hostages to allow increasingly urgent humanitarian aid to the Palestinian people in Gaza. Meanwhile, governments in the UK and Europe are attempting to curb pro-Palestinian marches. So how will Performer respond to these events? I spoke to the programme's curators, Defna Ayas and Cathy Noble. Cathy, we're about to see the first ever protest and performance series within Performer. Why now? What's important about doing something on protest within this programme today? I mean, Daphne and I started conceiving this programme quite a while ago. So it's almost like slightly prescient given what's happening in the world right now. When we began talking about it, we were kind of thinking about two things. One, there's a very rich history, obviously, of artists working with protest and activism as a medium. And that's deeply runs through the 20th century, through 60s, 70s, up until the present day. So that's always been like very at the core of what artists are doing. And performer always does look at things historically. 
However, Daphna and I started talking a lot, really inspired actually by a comment that Sharon Nashat, the artist who we've worked with many times, who's on our board made in relationship to this topic and kind of what, what was happening in the world a while ago, like six months ago. And we began talking to her and we began by talking about what this means in relationship to all the protests that had occurred worldwide in relationship to what had happened in Iran. Yeah, the conversation with Shirin Neshat was actually very important to us. So what happened in Iran with the Women Life Freedom Movement, especially with Mahsa Jina Amidi's murder, and then how the women and how the minorities in Iran started responding, you know, filling uh, pools and fountains with uh, red color uh, just the imagery that has been circulating not only in social media but like how it was reverberating with us was very inspiring to see so we wanted to really resonate with that moment in Iran and what happens with minorities what happens with the logic of suppression and oppression over minds and bodies over centuries because performance has always had that intellectual political muscle that addressed that complexity that hybridity how to create new languages uh, vis-a-vis state-induced violences or the logic of violence in general so Kathy and I, we really discussed like, how can we tap into the voice of the Levan? But at the same time, we also bring about how it's been resonating in Manhattan, in New York City, which has been really the source of performance history for performance mission. Within that vocabulary, how does it resonate within, you know, anti-Vietnam war energies and so forth. So we put together a program of eight different voices, propositions, performances. We didn't want to have a dry symposium, so it was really important for us that it was live actions. And here we are, Ben. Our conversations really did begin in the Middle East because of everything Daphne just said. I would say kind of half the work in the program is from different parts of the Middle East. But again, we programmed this quite a while ago. So the resonance of what those works mean now versus when we were talking about it, is all shifting a lot, I think. Absolutely. And, and, and of course, that resonance is at the core of the way that performance can be adaptable and respond, right, Daphne? Because, because in, in one way, yes, you've made a programme, but there's no way that the artists who are part of this programme cannot respond to what is happening in the world right now, right? Indeed. We started with a keynote lecture by a renowned scholar, Louis Chudesoke, he is a Nigerian background, Jamaican-raised, LA-wired professor of comparative literature who's been looking at the cosmic entanglements vis-à-vis our universal suffering zones, the various catastrophes, lived experiences through these catastrophes, through the sonic space. Quite an articulate scholar on the intersection of race, history, and technology. He's given us a lecture, how we actually kicked off the performance and protest program a few days ago, where he looked at his project that he took on with his collective looking at the Holocaust sites, the architecture in Nuremberg that was actually 
designed for one particular voice and how to resonify it with sonic experiences proposed by Armenian scholars, proposed by uh, Sufi prayers. How do you actually create a sonic zone, a reverberation resonance zone through sonicity? So we started with them. And last night, we had the first live performance of Rabbi Mruer, Lebanese artist, theater director of his take on the revolution in Beirut. But maybe Kathy would like to say more about last night. I mean, Rabi had made a film called Our Hirak that he showed earlier this year. Um, and the film was really exploring 2019, the uprisings in 2019 in Beirut, and then kind of ends when the very, very tragic explosion happened. Mm. And it, we turned this into a live performance with a woman, Aina Ramin, performing in the role that Rabi would normally perform. Rabi wasn't actually there, but he wanted to do that. Mainly because really the thread that he'd woven through that was that those protests were very much a feminist and a queer-led uprising in Beirut. So much of the performance was very much thinking about moments within them that were almost joyous. But then it takes a very intense trajectory. It was a very intense experience last night because it also then led into all the like very, very tragic consequences, such as suicides. There was reoccurring suicides all the way through the end of the uprisings. And then when the explosion happened, you know, a country that had already been devastated financially was then physically devastated. So as much as this was about 2019, 2020, when I spoke to all the audience after last night, they were like, it was so resonant watching this in this moment in time, because it really is making them or us wonder what will be the consequences of what's happening now what are the consequences that we can't predict like none of this is predictable and definitely in the material that you've written around the program I was really taken by the fact that there were two questions that you wanted to ask about what protest means and about how it can be effective and I thought this was a really interesting idea that one of the criticisms that's often leveled at contemporary art that deals with issues is that it's within a bubble it's siloed it's speaking to a converted audience but the idea that protest can be effective and that art can speak to its effectiveness can you say more about that because I think that's a really intriguing idea that you want the art to be doing something I mean I think we're really looking at the spectrum how a new language can be invented when there's impasse where there's no exit um, and how artists are really there to create that um, language to access justice, how they are decoding maybe protest movements or very specific historical moments, how they decode the affect from it and recode it into their work and what frequency it can really work. That is really an important aspect in the sense that we give that platform to the artist to see when there is no effective protest, what can art do to create those channels for body to emerge, for language to emerge, for the complexity and hybridity to be translated or relate to the audience. So we're almost operating in a subsonic zone with intellectual muscles operating on several registers, not only on the earthly plane, but also <laughs> even in our cosmic entanglements. Uh, that's how I see it these days. 
But of course, several of our artists are involved on several levels with variety of protest movements. You know, they are really strong in the trenches, whether it's a feminist agenda or queer agenda or anti-government agenda, anti-corruption agenda. So from those we have invited, for instance, like the Pages, who are Iranian artists based in Rotterdam, they have a much more conceptual take rather than going into the eye of the pain. They are really working with artists who are actually still active in Iran and bringing them out and looking at more conceptual issues vis-a-vis the theater, performer, stage and the language. But then there are artists like Rana Hamadeh, who's also Lebanese, like Rabia, who's looking at the constructs of the Shiite terminology, taking the Ashura ritual as a template upon which she is actually making a claim to justice and the theater of justice, who gets to have access to justice and who doesn't have to have justice. So there will be many ways to access to work and think about where we are in the world right now. Kathy, one of the things I'm really conscious of is that, as you say, it relates so much to the Middle East. And we've heard from just the locations that you've mentioned, the two of you, that that is the case. But of course, protest at the moment is something which is under threat. You know, we're hearing on a daily basis that authorities are struggling to know what to do in relation to protest or are outright trying to shut them down. Is that something which this program can activate too, a a questioning around the fact that protest itself is threatened and protest itself is challenged by governments and importantly in the global north as well as elsewhere in the world? I think in a way it's almost challenged everywhere at the moment. I think a lot of people right now almost feel as if they can't have a voice or they don't have a voice or if they have their voice, their voice will be the wrong voice and they'll be told off. I mean, I'm thinking of the art world in particular, but generally everything is incredibly polarised and there's vast pressures coming from slightly murky, unknown sources all over the place. I think one of the projects, though, that really is questioning all of these things and will be a very much real-time response to the last couple of years and right now is a project we're doing with Greg Bordowitz, so very long-time activist, amazing artist, and Pamela Sneed, amazing writer, was deeply involved in AIDS activism in the 80s too. So Greg and Pamela are doing a project called Very Apt, Healthcare Not Warfare. Again, titled a long time ago, but The Warfare, Very Apt. And they've invited a variety of different people to participate in it, including Morgan Bachitsis, Ola Ronk from the Free Black Women's Project, Viva Ruiz and Kay Barrett. And I think one of the things to note in this is that Greg and Morgan Bachitsis are both very active themselves in Jewish Voice for Peace. So they've both been actively protesting at the moment. Jewish Voice for Peace was protesting at the Statue of Liberty a few days ago. It was very, very, very active. I guess what I'm saying is I think in that project, as much as the focus is healthcare and all the systemic problems that are occurring in relationship to that, particularly in America, it's also a project that is really thinking about who has a voice, who's allowed to speak, what different kinds of protest are, what different kinds of action are, How can we come together as groups in different ways? Like, how are we safe to come together as groups? It's not even safe for some people still, like health-wise, to really be in a room with others. COVID is still a very active thing that we're all pretending is not happening. It's going to be a complex project that's a lot of fun that I also think is going to address right on the nose, probably, a lot of the different things that are happening in the world right now. 
especially the intersectional aspects of political issues that are driving the protest energies all around the world, not only in New York, will be emerging in this variety theater the two are putting together with their collaborators who are also involved with the pro ceasefire movements in the city. The other project we have, been maybe in relation to the question you asked to Kathy, is in terms of self-censorship is the project that Göksu Kunak will be doing, a queer Turkish artist who is coming from the middle of Asia Minor, from Ankara. She is Berlin-based, and she is really looking at the aesthetics of self-censorship and camouflage, taking the notion in Islam, takia, when you hide yourself in the case of persecution, and really taking it on through the speculative fiction route of Negrastani and driving it as a way, like how do you camouflage through gender, non-binary gender encapsulations? How do you take camouflage as a protection? How do you work with language as camouflage methods? So she's actually really addressing exactly what she asked through that work in a very live, dynamic provocative way. She just got her visa, so she's on her way. We look forward to her performance this one. I think so much of what we're doing really is actually saying who has a voice, who's allowed to have a voice, how can they have a voice, how can they have this voice, whether it's in public, whether it's in a room, whether it's something that they do very privately. Yeah, All of these things, I think, constitute protest. And of course, in the art world at the moment, there is a certain amount of concern among artists, about the art world being a safe space for that voice, right, definitely? And in, in the sense that whatever we think of the original letter that was published in Art Forum, and the Art Forum's editor has lost his job because of a letter that was published, which he didn't write, but at the same time, there is a sense in which all over the place, there are funding sources and so on who are finding problems in what artists are doing and so on. So it's, it's a quite a fraught subject for, for art right now, the idea of protest and having a voice, isn't it, Defna? Yeah, the undoing of 20th century through what we're experiencing in the region is very real. It's a very complex geopolitical asymmetrical time that cannot be only reduced to binaries. In my opinion, we need to really create space for beyond the binary positions. That's what our work has always been in the past decades I've been in this field. I, as a curator, would like to move beyond cultural wars and political retaliations. Yes, we are going through a Cold War renaissance, but at the essence, you know, we need to create the platforms that we are and preserve the platforms that we are as spaces where the multiplicity of voices can be expressed. And that's really the heart and the essence of everything we're doing through this program, as well as at Performa. Well, Kathy and Defna, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. The Performer Biennial 2023 continues until the 19th of November. You can find more details about the protest and performance programme and all the other biennial events at performer2023.org. Coming up, the National Trust Row and a Hans Holbein portrait. That's after this week's news bulletin. 
First, a roundup of news relating to the war in Gaza. The artists Nicholas Gallanin and Merritt Johnson have withdrawn a work from an exhibition of contemporary Native American art at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., in protest at the U.S. government's military aid to Israel. Meanwhile, the exhibition Death, Life's Greatest Mystery at the Royal Ontario Museum in Canada reopened last Friday after it was closed because of an overnight sit-in by a Palestinian-American artist who successfully reversed what she called the museum's censorship and alteration of her work after certain words in the piece, including Palestine, were questioned by the museum. Also last Friday, in London, it emerged that the word Gaza had been spray-painted onto the Wiener Holocaust Library in London, the world's oldest cultural institution dedicated to the memory of the Holocaust. The library's director, Toby Simpson, said that to lash out against Israel by targeting a Holocaust institution is not only stupid and wrong, it's an action that can only make sense to anti-Semites and their enablers. And as Cathy Noble mentioned in the performer conversation, around 500 protesters affiliated with the group Jewish Voice for Peace, including the performer artist Greg Bordowitz and the activist artist Nan Goldin, took over the base of the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbour at around 1pm local time on Monday to call for a ceasefire. In other news, the toilet of Venus, known as the Ropeby Venus by Diego Velasquez, was attacked at London's National Gallery on Monday. The painting, created between 1647 and 1651, is one of the most celebrated masterpieces in the gallery's collection. It was targeted by two members of the climate activist group Just Stop Oil. The group shared footage of the attack on their account on X, formerly known as Twitter, and say they are protesting against the awarding of new oil and gas licences in the UK. A National Gallery statement confirmed that the painting had been attacked with what appeared to be emergency rescue hammers and that two people had been arrested. The gallery said that minimal damage has been sustained to the surface of the painting. Therefore, it will be undergoing conservation treatment before going back on display. There is no timeline yet on when that will be. And finally, the New York auction season began rather modestly at both Christie's and Sotheby's earlier this week, with Pablo Picasso's 1932 portrait of Marie-Thérèse Walter, Femme à la Montre, facing the biggest price, hammering at $121 million, or $139.4 million with fees, just over its unpublished pre-sale target in excess of $120 million. We'll be doing a full report on the auctions in next week's podcast. You can read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This November, discover Graphic Century, an online auction focusing on the dramatic expansion of printmaking from the mid-19th to the mid-20th centuries. The sale features significant examples of French Impressionism from Pierre-Auguste Renoir and Édouard Vuillard, alongside standouts by Pablo Picasso, Juan Miró, Jasper Johns, Roy Lichtenstein and more. With estimates starting under $1,000, this is a prime opportunity for collectors to acquire works by blue-chip artists at surprising prices by the 15th of November on Christie's.com. Welcome back. Now, the National Trust is a bastion of public life in Britain. Founded in 1895, it's since then aimed to promote the permanent preservation of places of historic interest and natural beauty for the benefit of the nation. It's the largest conservation charity in Europe, with around 5.7 million members, 40,000 volunteers and 10,000 staff. As well as 500 historic properties, gardens and nature reserves, it looks after nearly 1,000 square miles of countryside and 780 miles of coastline. But since 20 
2020 with the release of the interim report on the connections between colonialism and properties now in the care of the National Trust, including links with historic slavery. It's been at the heart of the UK's culture wars. An obscurely funded organisation called Restore Trust emerged in 2021, seeking to ensure the National Trust's focus and priorities are driven, quote, solely by its noble mandate, rather than what it describes as modish, divisive ideologies. In other words, its engagement with progressive causes and ideas, including LGBTQ initiatives, the report on colonialism and slavery, and its response to the climate emergency. Restore Trust's mission has also been championed by media and politicians at the furthest right of British politics, including the former UKIP leader, Nigel Farage. This weekend, votes at the National Trust's annual general meeting will reveal whether Restore Trust can gain a presence on the charity's board and succeed in halting some of the organisation's plans. To find out more about the Trust, its place in British culture, and why it's at the heart of such a passionate dispute, the Art Newspaper's Associate Digital Editor, Alexander Morrison, spoke to Martin Drury, the Director General of the National Trust, between 1996 and 2001. Martin, this might be a tricky question to start with uh, when you're talking about an organisation with a 128-year history, but I wondered if you could, in as brief terms as possible, tell me in your own words what the National Trust is, why it was founded, and what kind of role it's played in British life since. Well, it was founded by three visionary people towards the end of their careers, which had been devoted to quite different walks of life. One was a housing reformer, Octavia Hill, who was the best known, and she had been looking for somewhere where the people whose housing conditions she had greatly reformed could go by right during their leisure hours, weekends on Sundays really, to breathe fresh air and move around freely without feeling that anyone was going to stop them doing so. The other person was a far-eating parson from the Lake District who was much influenced by Ruskin. He'd been in the, at Oxford and Ruskin was very influential there. And his ambition was to, indeed his life had been spent keeping the railways out of the Lake District. He was a sort of heir of Wordsworth in that sense. And the third was a man who was the technician, the engineer of the three, Robert Hunter, who was a lawyer and who'd won his spurs preventing commons from being built over in the 1860s, and that experience was hugely useful when it came to bonding with these three under the auspices of the fourth founder, who's then Duke of Westminster, who got them together, by drafting an Act of Parliament, which is really the secret of the success of the National Trust. The National Trust has been successful because of the Act, which gave it the power to declare property inalienable, an extraordinary power, borrowed actually from America, which most people don't know, and secondly, that it's independent of government, and that's why I really the National Trust has survived. So those are the three founders. Because of this gift of being able to declare things inalienable, Mm. it's been used by benign forces in all sorts of fields to achieve their ends. So very early on, scientists became interested in the National Trust because the land was disappearing. The Fens, for example, were being drained, and a group of scientists from Cambridge discovering that this organisation could preserve places, indeed was obliged to do so once they'd accepted a gift, banded together and gave the National Trust a bit of wick and fen, which we've been keeping wet for the last 128 years. I think that came in 1903 or something like that. Uh, When the roads came, when uh, cars came, I mean, there was a fear that rural England was being spoiled and villages were being spoiled and they were being suburbanised. And so a surprising number of villages were given to the National Trust in the 20s and 30s. Meanwhile, it had been doing what Octavia Hill funded it to do, which was to acquire open spaces, mostly quite small areas of land in those days for people to breathe fresh air and enjoy themselves. And then in the, in the 1934, as a result of a speech Lord Lothian made, 
who just inherited several large country houses, it got into country houses as a result of a second act. So gradually it's gathered support from a wide spectrum of interests. And that's its great and extraordinary strength. It's unique in the world. There are other national trusts, but only one of them has all the distinctive things that the National Trust has, and rather surprisingly, that's in Italy. It's unique in the world and hugely successful. And the envy of the world, when I was, my last years when I was Director General, indeed before that, I was always being asked to go abroad to tell other countries how they could have a National Trust. So I don't know what it was like before I joined. When I joined in 1973, there were 300,000 members, which just seems quite a, little, quite a lot then, but it was nothing to compare with the six, nearly six million it is now. There was certainly great enthusiasm internally, and the members are always very keen. Indeed, that was the beginnings of the members' associations, what we used to call National Trust Centres, was about that time in the 70s. But it's only in recent years, with a very highly successful recruiting campaign, putting on a million members a year for a while, and the interests of mobility, everyone has a car, and the value that people attach to recreation these days. The National Trust supplies that deep need that people feel if life's tough, at least I shall give my children the opportunity to benefit from the National Trust. And, and when you became director in 96, yes. what were the, some of the challenges you were facing in, in that role? Well, the buildings had really receded from the National Trust's attention because they didn't on the whole need the National Trust anymore. Since 1937, conditions had greatly changed. There was a great emergency in the 30s and after the war, particularly when a lot of houses were completely derelict and many people did give up and many, as we know, were demolished. But that period of emergency gradually receded. There were ways, other ways of looking after national uh, country houses. I'm talking only about country houses. Of course, the Trust has many other interests, but that's the one for which it's most famous. And people could find their own charitable trusts and incomes had greatly increased. And there was a much greater confidence and, most significantly, a younger generation had come along who were prepared to cope with these places without having lots of employees. I mean, I was always keen to broaden the perception of what historic interest means. And one of the first things that happened in my time was I was telephoned by John Burt, who was then Director General of the BBC, and he said he'd taken his children up to Liverpool, because that's where he comes from. We wanted them to see their origins, and found there was a for sale notice outside the house where John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote the very first songs, where they used to gather there after school, because Father McCartney was late back from work and he hadn't got a mother. So there was a question about whether that was of national interest, but we very quickly decided it was. And it's been inundated with visitors ever since. Indeed, when we opened it, it had it was syndicated more widely in the world than any other, any other acquisition the National Trust had ever made. So broadening the idea, there were other examples of that, of what historic value meant, uh, was one of my aims. And the other was to deepen the interest of places and broaden their appeal, which has always been the Trust's objective. It strikes me that the National Trust has been a kind of constant amongst a lot of change, including political change. Certainly while you were at the Trust, you would have seen quite a few prime ministers and governments come and go. How much political consideration was there within your role? Well, it was part of the Director-General's remit to keep in touch with the government of the day and to engage and retain its sympathy. And mostly the National Trust has managed to achieve that because on the whole it's a non-political organisation, except when it gets into issues which have become political because of strength of feeling. During my time, the great issue was stag hunting. At least it was hunting generally. And we were much taken up with trying to, first of all, to persuade those who felt very strongly that, that all hunting was cruel, that it was part of rural life and had become a political issue, which we didn't need or want to get involved in. We were there to sustain traditional pursuits in rural England and where estates had been left us on the condition hunting didn't take place, and there were one or two, 
we observed those wishes and vice versa. And we managed to hold back that quite concentrated series of resolutions brought at AGMs and mostly they were defeated by the vote of the membership. And then just before my time, the uh, advice of the council was ignored and a resolution which asked to look into the impact of hunting on the well-being of the deer. I think that was the deer particularly. They were clever because deer hunting was the thing which most people thought repellent. <laughs> Those who live in Devon think it's part of natural life. And indeed, it was very effective at maintaining the quality of the deer. But most people think, they first of all, they think that hounds tear them down, as, as illustrated, but they don't, of course. So lots of misconceptions about that. So it's clever of the anti-hunters to start by concentrating on something which um, most people are either indifferent about or were prepared to be persuaded was not desirable. And uh, without going into too much detail, uh, eventually uh, we were persuaded to look in to commission a report into the impact of stag hunting on the welfare of the deer. And to everyone's surprise, including the deer hunters themselves, it was found that it was very damaging to the welfare of the deer and the National Trust. Before, although I was responsible for that decision, ultimately, at the, before really looking back, it was wise to have done so because within a year, hunting had become illegal anyhow, all hunting, including stag hunting. So it's clear that the, the trust has been the subject of much debate and, and has indeed welcomed debate and evolved as a result. Yes. Um, I wondered, that seems to have really picked up pace, certainly in the public eye in the last couple of years. I'm thinking, of course, of in 2021, the pressure group Restore Trust going public. Yes. Their argument being that the trust was moving away from what it perceived to be its main yes. priorities. Either, I, I'm yeah. not very close to that. I mean, I've watched, no. uh, I've read and I did a written letter about Clandon, where I think Restore Trust is actually wrong. I think I just got that right because I know something about that, having been there, and I was involved in previous fires. And Clandon Park, to be clear, is a, it burned Clandon, down in Clandon 2015. Park was a disastrous fire. But the reason I had an interest in that was because I'd been partly responsible for dealing with the consequences of a similar fire, disastrous fire at Up Park in Sussex in 1989. The general point to make is that if you're running an organisation to which a large chunk of the middle class belongs... I mean, that in itself was a slight embarrassment to the National Trust always. They always we're always wanting to extend the membership to people who aren't even aware of it, people who live in towns and, and, uh, and, and um, some of the immigrant groups, although that's been rather successful recently. If you have a membership which is highly educated, highly articulate, and has very strong views across the spectrum, you're not likely to please everyone all the time. The great, the great message, when people ask me all the time, what do you think about the National Trust these days? I say, I've retired long ago. But I just tell them that it's the most extraordinary organisation, as I started by saying at the beginning of this talk. Admired by the world, this huge, devoted and interested membership. And that's the thing that's marvellous. Not that sometimes it displeased people who regard it as doing things which are... I try not to use the word woke, because that defines you as a certain kind of person. Others would say compassionate. Quite. And, and to clarify for our listeners, the main criticisms at the moment are that the trusts are no longer focusing on what they see to be the main remit, which is looking after historic buildings and properties, and instead of focusing on what they yes. see as modish, divisive ideologies, such yes. as, you know, they ran a uh, colonialism and slavery yes, interim report. Yes, well, gosh. Um, and uh, climate change is another yes. issue that they, they don't um, think the trust should be so our involved traditional, in. Our traditional approach was to confine our contributions to public debate the subjects on which we had some experience to contribute, that's saying the management of land, the management of historic buildings. For a while, that was widely regarded as sensible, supported by the membership, and was, it was possible to maintain that position. But gradually, as the impact of climate change began to affect everyone, and the quality of water, for example, which everyone minds about, and we are, the National Trust suffers from, from polluted water, as the whole country does, it became impossible to confine our, what we said publicly, to issues which were based on 
Well, they were based on our experience, but they had a wider application. And I suppose that there are fault lines in the National Trust. I mean, it's a hugely successful organisation, but that's partly coincidence, partly to do with our history, partly to do with the fact that it started in 1895 when England was a quite a different place. Indeed, it was only it was all British Isles then. And it has these three weak points, which it's the job of the Director General and the Council to shore up and make sure they don't open. One is between countryside and buildings. Most governments give those responsibilities to different departments. In most of the world, they're, they're separate considerations. The other is the, which is the defining characteristic of the National Trust, which is it's a partnership between private and public interests. So the people who've given their houses to the National Trust are one example of the private interests which it serves to benefit the public. And that's a very important thing which not many people fully understand. And we're independent of government, so people contribute give us money, and that's from private people. It would support it by private people, usually. We get all sorts of benefits from the government as well, tax benefits and grants that are available to everyone and also available to us. And the third is the potential fault line between the institution, the National Trust itself, and the properties which the institution is founded to protect and promote and look after. And um, all the staff of the National Trust tend to be idealistic people. They tend to be people who are fired with the desire to make the world a better place, they tend to be quite young, and they get younger and younger. They're much younger than they were when I joined. When I joined, some of the staff had been running regions since the war. So there was a kind of internal stability which matched the pace of country life. And actually, the National Trust now moves faster than the pace of country life because people change jobs, as they do everywhere, every five years or so. From what you're saying, it sounds like the National Trust has been evolving that way, hiring younger people. And in that way, just coming back to the idea of of it following its remit, it is in a way responsible for looking after not just properties, but land and also thinking about how we interpret history, the changing nature of... uh, Where I was going was that that the interests of the National Trust are that membership should be spread as widely as possible to as wide a variety of people as possible, all ages all social origins and so on. And the interests of the properties are that they should be carefully looked after and maintained forever. And sometimes those two two clash. And the people who feel passionately about extending the remit of the National Trust, uh, the idealistic people, sometimes aren't walking exactly parallel with those who want to make sure that Tissinghurst, for example, doesn't get wrecked by too many feet. It's an inherent problem. There was years ago a man called Bailey, who was chairman of the National Trust in the 30s, said um, that there was always a tension between conservation, he didn't call it that then, preservation, I think he called it an access. But in the end, preservation has to prevail because without preservation there could be no access. It's a key thing in the National Trust to be managed and those two interests, they're complementary but different groups of people. I see. And of course, as, as the Trust grows to become the second largest membership organisation in the UK, as you say, over 5 million members, um, it also has a responsibility to cater for that wider audience. You, yeah. you, so beyond, of course, the middle classes that you were referring yeah. to earlier. And it also has a responsibility to cater for the histories and interests of those people. So do you think that assessing the histories of buildings that have been there for a long time, in fact, makes total sense and in fact should be a responsibility of, of the Trust to some extent. I do. Yeah. I think the Trust had a duty, always has a duty, to research and make available the, the results of its research into the history of its properties. Hmm. And that paper, which was linked, of course, with Black Lives Matter, I suppose it was indirectly a result of that, was an entirely responsible thing to do. It was unfortunate that it was published at the time when so many staff were being laid off because of COVID, which is bad luck or bad timing. I think I won't say any more about that, but I think it was entirely responsible to do that. And the fact that the press picked out slightly silly criticisms of famous people in order to shock, really, was unfortunate, but it didn't, to my mind, make it an irresponsible thing to do. 
One other thing that restore trust, but also generally has been a conversation point in the press lately has been the way that the trust is managed and run. There are conversations about the fact that the power lies in the hands of a few and that, that the volunteers who have been such a core part of the organisation for so long are being kind of sidelined. What's your perception well, of that? I frankly that? don't know about that. I, I um, have no idea. How much has it changed? All the way I can that, say yeah. is that um, looking back over my 60 years since I joined, the volunteer element has greatly increased. There were always volunteers showing the houses, standing in the rooms and stewards, room stewards as they're called. Uh, I remember the first volunteers working in a garden at Wimpole, around about 2000. So the volunteer element has greatly increased. As to where the power lies, this is a kind of cyclical thing. There was a great movement, indeed it was the members' wish, to push power out to the regions and to give regions authority to make decisions, which at that time were felt to be centralised. And in my time, I think you could sum up that principle by saying that the regions were self-sufficient, except for they need certain things from the centre. Policy, money and expert advice, some expert advice. Quite a lot of the day-to-day managing of the properties was knowledge to achieve that was in the regions. And those are the three things that came to the centre. And that seemed to me a very satisfactory arrangement. I think it was always a debate as to whether there should be that all the expertise that National Trust requires to run its properties should be gathered at the centre and deployed nationally according to need. In my day, each regional director had at his or her elbow people who were experienced and knowledgeable about architecture. They had a, a person who was called, now called a curator, they were then called historic building representatives. They had PR people and they had people spreading the message of the National Trust at their elbow. And personally, I think that was a better arrangement than the present one, which, because, apart from anything else, because representatives who, where I sprung from, I started life as a representative, so I obviously have view, views on that discipline. Um, I now call curators, which has a kind of a connotation which doesn't really describe the job, because what actually they are, are, are curators of places. And when they were standing at the elbow of the regional director, who was the person then in charge of the region, they were able to give advice on all aspects of his responsibility for looking after those places. So you needed much wider knowledge than narrow creatorship implies. There are many people who work for the Trust, and I do have that wide knowledge. So, in short, I'm just that one point, I think that in those days, it was always thought to be head office, but nobody ever was pleased with head office. Head office is always criticised. We did a staff survey in my time, and everyone said they were very proud to work for the National Trust, and, and um, 99% gave had job satisfaction. When they were asked about the people they worked for, they thought, well, the people they worked for were terrific. Um, what about the people above that? They haven't a clue what they're doing. They're completely... <laughs> so anyone beyond the person who have a personal relationship is always regarded as out of touch. I think that's a... The, the people who conducted that survey thought it was rather bad. I thought it was rather a good thing that people had such passion for their work that they actually never really felt they were properly appreciated. That's, that's how it came across, which, of course, is bad news. But they were appreciated by the people they were working with. And the trust is very much appreciated. I was reading this 71% approval rate and, and, and the same figure believe that the trust are a force for good, which is something that the BBC on something like minus 8%. So it shows that the <laughs> public think, appreciation for the trust well, is very why, much is still that's there. That's why it's such fun for the press. Uh, yes. Particularly the art newspaper, of course, to make fun of the National Trust and to pretend that it's in a terrible crisis, which it does the whole time. Talking about that press eruption that seems to have taken place recently, do you think it says something about the times we're in that, I mean, even a small ish group, this uh, Restore Trust supposedly have something like 40,000 supporters? They have big 
political figures behind them. I mean, Nigel Farage, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and, you know, the, one of the councils they're putting forward for this weekend's AGM is Lord Sumption, who obviously has a very decorated background of a Supreme Court judge. Um, do you think that the level of debate around what seems to be a storm and a teacup issue is, says something about where we are with our national institutions? I think what it mostly says is people care very much about their aftertrust. People mind about it. And if they mind about it, they want it to be as much like them as possible. Indeed, everyone wants to really be in charge. And you can't please six, six, nearly six million people. I think that's what it says. I mean, it is, I'm interested about that statistic. I didn't know it was 71% approval. It doesn't surprise me. That was always the case. But I think that the two things are related. I think that the, the constant um, uh, feeling by people that somehow doesn't understand what I'm interested in or it's being deflected into things that are irrelevant, it's a symptom of minding very much. This weekend is a big moment for the Trust, as every AGM seems to be. Where do you think, judging on the current situation, the organisation is heading in the the months and years to come? Is there a resolution to the current debates that you can see, or is this a kind of inevitability? I mean, I'm not close enough to predict that with any authority. But if history is anything to go by, there have been three or four of these sort of apparent crises in my memory of the National Trust, and eventually they've all faded away. Hunting, I must say, always rumbles on because there are so many aspects to that. But we were once attacked by CND in the, in the 80s for allowing underground bunker to be extended. That was very worrying for us because it seemed to have happened without consultation. So we learnt from that experience. The Trust always learns from these bouts of criticism. And I'm sure it's learning now from the experience of these people who are all, of course, good people. And they believe in the National Trust. They just don't think it's the National Trust that they want. Thank you very much, Martin. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking me. You can read more on this story at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. A new exhibition, Holbein at the Tudor Court at the Queen's Gallery in Buckingham Palace, features the remarkable holdings of Hans Holbein the Younger in the UK's Royal Collection. The show includes magnificent drawings and miniatures, as well as a host of paintings made across Holbein's two stays in England. The first between 1526 and 1528, and the second from 1532 until his death in 1543. Among them is Holbein's newly restored portrait of Derek Bourne, made at the start of that second period in England. I went to the Queen's Gallery to talk to Kate Hurd, the curator of the exhibition, about the work, and you can see a picture of it on the Art Newspaper's Instagram and on the web story for this episode. Kate, Holbein was back in England. He'd gone back to Basel for a little while. Why did he go back to Basel and why did he then come back to England? We're not entirely certain why he went back to Basel. There are all sorts of theories. He had a wife and children there in the city. He was threatened with losing his Basel citizenship, which would have been precious to him, so he he may well have gone back for that. Um, He may also have gone back because Albrecht Dürer had just died and you wonder if he was looking for the potential in the wake of Dürer's death. Ah, so there might have been a market for him. Absolutely. I was going to say, it wasn't because he was mourning the death of a great artist, it was because he was seeing a potential opportunity. I think he saw an opening, maybe. Yes, it's just a possibility. How interesting. But anyway, he comes back to England, nevertheless. Tell us what happens when he gets here. When he gets here, he continues to gain commissions, and and quite fast. We know one of the earliest commissions he gained was for a merchant of the Steelyard, which is a painting which is on display in the exhibition, with a, a letter he's holding dated in 1532, which gives 
lives as Holbein back in London. And in 1533, he was commissioned to paint Derek Bourne, another of the steelyard merchants. So he seems to step back into a, a thriving practice. Tell us a bit more about the steelyard. It doesn't exist in London anymore because there's a great big station where it used to be, right, in the city. Absolutely. It was an enclosed trading community with special privileges. It was the Hanseatic League, which was a league of German merchant towns, and they were able to trade in London with these special privileges granted by the monarch. And they did that all from the steel yard, which was where they lived, but also they had a communal hall there and it was where they traded from. And the power of the Hanseatic League can't be overestimated, really, can it? Because, it, because they were hugely powerful in their time. They were. And it was partly because they were banding together as a, as a sort of trading corporation, as it were. So they, they had a huge sway across Northern Europe, really. Right. OK, so let's talk about the particular individual that we're facing, a guy called Derek Ball. What do we know about him? We know that he was a merchant in the steel yard. We know quite a bit about him from Holbein's painting because Holbein tells us his name, tells us his age, 23, in 1533. We know that he traded in England in 1536. He was supplying metal to the king's armourer. We know that he left in 1541 because he entered a dispute with the Duke of Suffolk. Duke of Suffolk is one of the most powerful men in the country. You don't want to do that. Then we find him in Antwerp in various trade deals and he's last recorded in Cologne in 1549, still complaining about the fact that he was expelled from the steel yard after falling out with the Duke of Suffolk. Is there evidence of the way Holbein interacted with his patrons like Derek Bourne and others because obviously if he is making so many portraits of the members of the Hanseatic League in, in the steel yard do we have any indication of the interaction between them? Fascinatingly none at all the only record of a sitting is the three hour sitting Christina of Denmark gave Holbein Otherwise, we know absolutely nothing. Everything we tell is from the works in front of us. So um, it's fascinating. But of course, I guess a, a key factor is that, yes, they're very wealthy people and therefore they are a means of employment for Holbein. But of course, they're, they're German, so he would have been speaking his own language and so on. Absolutely. And there may also have been a merchant connection because we know that he hung around in Antwerp before coming to England. So he may have found the merchant community who were making money, who wanted to express their status, express their success and wealth. He may have found that a very ready market for his portraits. Let's zoom in on the portrait itself then. He's a very handsome chap, isn't he? He seems very proud of his handsome features. He does, absolutely. He sits, he looks directly at you. He's turning his head to look at you and he's leaning on that balustrade in front of him with that really relaxed, elegant air. He, he really commands the space. He does, and he's got very chiselled chin. Cheekbones. And we know from recent conservation, don't we, that, that Holbein really worked at these. He did. He did. This has been absolutely thrilling. It's been a, a really fascinating project to watch. We know from a, a long conservation project that was undertaken by the paintings conservation team at, at Royal Collection Trust that he was originally much chubbier and Holbein has refined and refined and refined his cheekbones, refined his jawline, refined also his hair and his shoulders to create that image you see today. Would that have been entirely at the artist's discretion or might Derek Bourne have been involved in those decisions? Again, we have no evidence. We wonder whether Holbein was asked by Derek Bourne to change it, but you see Holbein in all his paintings refining and refining and refining. He's never make do, he's always make better and better and better until he gets it the best he can. And of course he's meeting our gaze, isn't he? And that's an important factor, I mean, and mostly full face. So there's a sort of an intensity about the way that we're engaging with him. It is a very intense portrait, and if you look at the portraits around the exhibition, and there, there are a number of portraits on display, 
you can see how Holbein really positions his sitter really, really carefully. He's always thinking about the interaction between the viewer and the sitter and how the sitter's portrayed. And of course, in some of his portraits, Holbein doesn't make them look at us. They're often looking out of the portrait and, and perhaps thinking of their ambitions or, the, or their um, political machinations or whatever. But this is different to that. There is a sense in which he wants us to connect. He does absolutely look at us. I mean, one of my favourite drawings in the exhibition is a man called John Points. And he's turned to look over his shoulder and really high above his head. And when you look, Holbein has sketched the clothing in really quickly. When you start to think about it, you realise points would not have been able to hold that pose for very long. It would have been really uncomfortable. So you suddenly you're there with them, seeing Holbein sketching as fast as he can. So, yes, absolutely, he poses them in all sorts of different ways. And a rather wonderful quote from Hilary Mantel said about these, that they were sort of mugshots taken by a genius. I think he is a genius. I mean, he's one of the great artists of the 16th century, and he was known at the time for making his figures seem lifelike, and that's what that inscription on Derek Bourne tells us. If he only had a voice, it would be Derek. All this image lacks is a voice to appear alive, which is an incredible talent. We mentioned Dürer earlier on, and that quote actually relates to one very similar quote on a portrait by Dürer, is that correct? It is a piece of praise about Dürer that was published in a book that was illustrated with reused woodcuts by Holbein, so Holbein may have known it. And again, you wonder if he's positioning himself as the next Dürer. That's it, you're almost saying, I can match him. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Let's talk about the background of the portrait. Because one of the things that, of course, when Holbein came to England, I think the first task he was given was to paint sets, to paint backgrounds. And his backgrounds are particularly refined and beautiful, aren't they, obviously? Yeah, I think he's showing us here what he can do with these vine leaves. They twist in the space and they appear to grow before our eyes. And he was well known for his illusionism. He was a house painter in Basel, among other things. And he could paint these wonderfully illusionistic facades that appear to have horsemen leaping off them. And as you say, when he came to London, one of his first jobs in 1527 was to paint almost stage scenery for a temporary entertainment at Greenwich. It was a meeting between the French and the English to discuss diplomacy and Holbein is one of a team of painters who creates those decorations. Of course, one of the great things about Holbein, as well as capturing the incredible lifelikeness and liveliness of the sitters, is his attention to fabric. And you have that here. In reproduction, you cannot see this. So this is another reason for people to come and see this painting, isn't it? It's incredible. I spend a lot of time just standing and looking really, really closely at that black fabric. It is just different black fabrics, but they all have the most incredible textures you get sheen, you get satin, you get fur, and then you look at the white of his linen and how it's a very thin fabric and it's sort of flowing out from his collar. It's the most incredible depiction, and this has really come out in this conservation project. You really see that afresh. And that wonderfully, you get the drawing that Holbein is so famous for in that collar, don't you? Because you see the little lines that are defining the fabric. You do. You see the blackwork embroidery around his collar and that's absolutely fascinating. It's as if it was there. It's not just Derek Bourne that appears alive. That looks like a, a piece of fabric before you. You can almost hear it rustle. You can. You can. The conservation project that you mentioned was done when the painting was on loan to the Getty. It happened during the COVID period and so there was quite a lot of delays and things like that, but it finally got done. 
Absolutely. And um, the conservation was undertaken in collaboration and with the support of the Getty Conservation Institute. The painting travelled to Los Angeles for their wonderful show, Holbein Capturing Character. And as part of that, the conservation was started and it was analysed with the scientific resources of the Institute in Los Angeles. And some wonderful things came out of that. Those wonderful sort of imaging techniques which allow us to see below the surface of the paint using only cameras. It was fantastic. And, and the painting was done on two panels and you can just see that actually when you go up really close to the painting can't you? you can see there's a sort of line down the middle of it but intriguingly more paint in that area was revealed through the conservation is that right yeah this has been absolutely thrilling Holbein painted it on two panels that join right down the center of Derek Bourne's face and that panel had been misaligned and realigned in the we think the 18th century and whoever had done that had done it as well as they could and had put filler in over Holbein's original paint. And then filler had been added to that filler over the centuries. So this was the opportunity very, very carefully under the microscope to remove some of that later filler and some of the overpaint and to reveal Holbein's original paint underneath. Oh, lovely. And that was where the Getty Conservation Resources came in, the ability to see what was underneath to, to really understand how that project was possible. Now, we'll end in a way on a sad note, which is Derek. Bourne's fate because we don't really know what happened to him is that right? No he was last recorded in 1549 complaining about his expulsion in Cologne and after that we don't know I mean he was aged 23 in 1533 he can't have been very old he may have gone on for some time after that and just not appeared in the records so in the 16th century you've got to encounter a record to be recorded you know something has to be written down he may well have been going on to a grand old age we just don't know. But one sense is that this might have been his finest hour. I think certainly he's a confident young man. I think, though, he might be looking at the potential before him. He's looking at a, a wonderful future, and this portrait's going to sort of set him in good stead as he goes on to make more and more deals and become more and more successful. Kate, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Holbein at the Tudor Court is at the Queen's Gallery in London until the 14th of April 2024. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Town Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Defna and Kathy, Alex and Martin and Kate. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.